little session here. First, second, and third John and Revelation. When I originally put these notes together, I don't know what I was thinking when I put all those together, but uh, now I do. I remember because we had a schedule to keep and we're not on a schedule anymore. So we'll do as much as we can and we'll let any uh, rabbit trails happen that need to and that's fine. Uh, again, thanks for letting me take a little time off. Uh, the holidays are always uh, an interesting time and I love the spring. I always come back fired up and I'm ready to, to see God do great things in our church and, and in your lives and in my life. And so uh, we have a lot of preaching planned for this uh, this spring. We have a, a women's retreat. We have a, a, another event or two that I'm not allowed to talk about yet apparently. Um, but a lot of preaching. Uh, our church has grown enough that I don't know when I'm supposed to announce something. And, and apparently I've announced a couple things before they were supposed to be announced. And so I'm just keeping my mouth shut at this point. Wait for others to talk. But we have a lot of... Uh, of spiritual feeding to enjoy this spring, and I'm I'm excited about it. Uh, it should be, Lord willing, um, the end of February. Last Sunday in February, uh, on Sunday night, we're going to start our Millennium series. Um, we will. My my intention is to end Ezra Nehemiah, which ends with Oh no, the kingdom failed, and start with the Millennial series. Millennium series right after that. So um, just put that on your calendar. Uh, you will never hear this preached in your lifetime at this level, as far as length and and breadth. And so um, I've never heard it preached at this level, and I'll be curious to see how it turns out. To be honest with you. So we'll we'll do that together. And, and like I did a few weeks ago, I, I hope I don't preach Sunday night service down to three people, uh, all last names Swartz, and we'll, it should be a good time together. So I'm excited about the spring, and we're going to get now into First, Second, and Third John, and maybe into Revelation. And we'll we'll pray, and then we'll get on with it this morning. Our Father, we thank you this morning. Oh, how good it is to gather around the warmth of the fire of the Word of God. How good it is to look around and see the saints that you have ordained before the foundation of the world to come to faith in Christ. Each one of us, Lord, with a story of salvation. Each one of us with a moment in time in which the Holy Spirit opened our eyes, unstopped our ears, and and softened our hearts to see the face of Christ. We thank you for that. We thank you for the fellowship of the saints. We thank you for this day, which is exclusively, Lord, our our purpose today is to worship and to be all about the Word of God and the God of the Word. We pray that this kind of warm-up for our Lord's Day would be helpful. We pray that you would tune our minds to you and turn our hearts to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to get into 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and I'm going to jump right in, have a lot of material. These are some of my favorite books, and they, they're just so interesting, and, and when you get to some of the shorter books of the New Testament, um, it's, it's easier to drill deeper, and so that's, that's always a good time. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the, the author is the Apostle John. There's never really been any dispute about that. And these are very late books. They're written in 80 to 90 AD, um, somewhere in there. And so uh, these are among the last books of the New Testament. Some of the themes found in all three, and, and we're lumping these together because they're very, very similar in a lot of ways. You have the theme of God. You have God spoken of 67 times. God the Father spoken of 16 times. You have the sub-theme of God's relationship with Jesus, which is a... 
a great little sub uh, theological topic. You have God's relationship with his children. That's uh, all over. And in fact, you have the term children. Uh, I, I have no greater joy than my children are, are walking in the truth. And so you have uh, God as a major theme. Then you have, and this is very specific as far as uh, Christology is concerned, you have the theme not just of Jesus, but that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And you know, the interesting thing about approaching now the end of uh, the Bible, and by the way, if you're wondering why we skipped Jude, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation, we did Jude when we did 2nd Peter, because the two are very, very similar. Those are traditionally always done together, and we stuck to that tradition. Uh, Even if you look at New Testament commentaries, very, very frequently, New Testament commentary series put 2nd Peter and Jude together. So, no, we didn't miss a book of the Bible. We We just did it in a little bit more traditional order. But the theme that Jesus is the Christ is is clear to be a really important theme as the Bible draws to a close. Because a a person reading the Bible needs to see this as a major theme. You get to Revelation and it's just everywhere. Um, Jesus not only as the Messiah, but in Revelation as the Lamb of God. And so you have these proofs. And, and if you've read through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John... And maybe ever made a comparison between John and Paul. Uh, it, it's interesting how God uses human authors, keeping their personalities, keeping the way God made them, keeping the way God um, formulated their thinking processes, and yet produces a Holy Spirit-inspired text. And if you read John alongside Paul, Paul is all about nuance. He is all about um, working his way into an argument, uh, into a, a a logical construction. Um, Paul is very much about um, uh, even arguing uh, different little points back and forth. The book of Romans, he, he uses a technique where he kind of argues with himself. He pretends to be different people. You know, if you say this, then that. John is totally different. He's very black and white. He just basically, you, how could you sum up John? You could say, uh, if John were up here, he would say, Jesus is the Christ. If you believe in him, you're going to heaven. The rest of you are going to hell. What is there to, to understand about that? He would also say, if you're not loving each other, you're not saved. It's that he's very black and white. He's very simplistic, not unintelligent, super intelligent, but very simplistic. Um, he, that's why uh, the book of 1 John has some of the more troubling verses to us, uh, because they're so black and white. And we kind of, in some ways, we're a little more comfortable with Paul, because Paul is nuanced, and you can kind of, you can kind of find some comfort in the shades of gray there. Um, but John doesn't have any. He has two colors, black and white, and that's it. And so it's a real joy to read because I think this is, this is needed at the end of the Bible. The, the time for nuance is done. Uh, John even, as we're going to see in Third John, he just flat out condemns bad people in the church and he names them. There's no, there's no if a person does this and if this happens. He's like, this guy is bad, stay away from him. So there's a, there's a real need for this. This is probably, put it this way, the difference between uh, a, a first-year medical student learning the theory of surgery versus at the end of the Bible here, the, 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 the patient is cut open and something needs to happen and instructions are do this, this, and this. So that's just the joy of, of John. Uh, Jesus is the Christ. 
Like, there's no arguing that. He just states it over and over again. And as I mentioned a second ago, the theme of love. John is even called the apostle of love, which is ironic because Jesus called him the son of thunder. And he was one with his brother James who was irritated at a village that didn't want to hear the gospel and asked Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven to, to toast these guys? And, and now you see him with the reputation of being the apostle of love and, and he mentions love. And I, I made a list there just dozens of times. And he makes a very interesting point in First John also, and, and I've counted, there's, there's different ways of counting this. I've counted about 24 times that John equates loving the church, loving the brothers with proof of salvation. And that it's just everywhere that if you love the brothers, you're in Christ. If you don't, you're not. So the person who says, I don't really want to be part of the church, the church is corrupt. Or I don't really want to love Christians, Christians are hypocrites. I, don't, I, I do my own thing. We have a home church. Uh, we have this and that. Nothing wrong with churches meeting in homes, but a home church is one we define as one that's leaderless and one that does not have qualified elders. That person, according to 1 John, is not showing love for their brothers. They're in, they're in spiritual danger. They're in spiritual danger because they don't demonstrate that first fruit of being in Christ. And that is that you suddenly have this affinity for those people that you used to make fun of. And so uh, love is everywhere. And then I, I think this makes sense considering, John, you have commands. John never makes suggestions. He doesn't use phrases like, you know, you ought to consider this. If, for example, you read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, now the Apostle Paul is very, he makes commands, no doubt about it. Husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands. He makes commands. You get to, you get to 1 Corinthians 7 and there's such tender topics happening there that he turns much more fatherly and proverbial. It's good to do this, but if you feel it's best, then you ought to do this. Make a good and wise choice. It's, it's wisdom literature. John doesn't do that. He tends to just give commands that you should do this. This is what ought to happen. And then you have the theme of abiding. Abiding in Christ. And and this is, to me, this is a very moving theme. Because, first of all, uh, John has a nickname. And he never said it was him. By the way, in, in John's gospel, he never identifies himself. He never names himself. And so whenever you hear about an unnamed disciple, it's almost always going to be John. And he identifies himself, he doesn't identify by, by name, but he identifies himself as the apostle whom Jesus loved, the disciple that Jesus loved. And so there was a very close bond between him and Jesus. It was an emotional bond. It was a spiritual bond. And if you remember, John is the last living apostle, um, probably by several decades. And so he, all of his friends in the ministry are gone. Um, decades earlier and so he of all people to talk about abiding in Christ abiding in in the faith um, what a what a testimony would you rather hear a 25 year old preach to you about abiding in Christ or a 95 year old I'd rather hear the 95 year old any day of the week it's a great thing about being a pastor the older you are the more qualified you are so uh, I love that so some just tremendous themes in there. Now let's get to some of the nuts and bolts, the literary structure. First John, 
is basically, it really is almost impossible to give a good structure for it. For every scholar in First John, there's a different structure because John's very repetitive. I've preached through First John as one message. You can find it on our website if you if you look for it. There's lots of different ways to outline it. This is probably the simplest way. The first four verses, the introduction of eternal life. Chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2, conditions for eternal life. And then you have the middle section, the the meat of the book, characteristics of eternal life. And then you have in chapter 5, the consequences of eternal life. And so you can see what the the major thrust here is, and that is eternal life. And isn't that great that, that right as we're beginning to round the corner toward the end of the Bible, the theme of eternal life is so big and so prominent. And then in 2 John, we could make this simple. Um, first four verses, walk in truth. 5 through 8, walk in love. And 9 through 13, walk in obedience. And we see this uh, classic theme from, uh, from both the Old and New Testament of the, the life of a faithful person being the life of walking, of journeying with the Lord. And this is, uh, this is a key passage for us. I, I love verse 4 of Second John. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we received commandments from the Father. And we'll come back to that in a bit. But that's, that's where he finds joy, that they are walking in truth. Um, if, if you've ever been stuck in or part of or even just visited a church where you know when the word of God was opened that it was a prop that it was a it was a, a, a backdrop it wasn't the prominent thing and you leave feeling hungry you leave feeling empty I, I don't know about you when I hear a sermon that doesn't feed me I'd rather have not heard anything didn't hear that. It's just, it's almost like going to a restaurant and having your stomach pumped. It's like, well, it's just don't walk in in the first place. And so this is so, so beautiful in Second John, where he says that joy comes from walking in the truth. What does that mean? It means you know the truth and you do the truth. And you, you do the things that are obedient. Walk in truth, walk in love, walk in obedience. Third John, it's much more personal. And this is where I love how open he is. I, I want to be like John when I grow up. Uh, verses 1 through 8, he commends a faithful leader in the church named Gaius or Gaius, depending on which part of the country you're from. And he commends him. He's faithful. He's, he's a good man in the church. And then verses 9 through 14, he condemns Diotrephes. Diotrephes loves to be first. He loves to get his way. He loves power. Um, and this is the bane and the misery that's brought on the church by a power-hungry, uh, ignorant man um, who, who begins to think that uh, the church belongs to him. This is the first thing that we think that every pastor ought to remember, every elder, whether a lay elder or, or a paid staff, that the church does not belong to you. The church is owned, bought, and purchased by Jesus Christ. It is filled with slaves of Christ, some of whom are followers and a few are leaders. And Diotrephes forgot that. And I just love how open John is about this. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not welcome what we say. 
So right there, that's pretty serious that when a, a leader in the church is saying that the apostles teaching is wrong, let me tell you what is right instead. So apparently there's a conflict in this church. For this reason, if I come, I will bring to remembrance his deeds, which he does. Oh, that's apostolic authority right there. There's no one left to do that. Um, but wouldn't it be great? I, I've thought about this. If an apostle could just walk into a church and clean house. Oh, that, yeah. See, you all like, oh, that'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. Uh, but then the flip side is, wait a minute, it might be me. You know, so, but I love that. And, and this, is, this is just a, a clear example of what a terrible leader is like. And I, I think everybody who aspires to uh, leadership or who is in leadership should, with great fear and trepidation, read about Diotrephes on occasion. And just be reminded of a man who went off track. Let's do the purposes of these books. First John. John declared the truth that gave believers assurance of eternal life and fellowship with God's children. I think this is really important if you are counseling someone or maybe this is you and you're struggling with assurance of salvation. There's really only two reasons to struggle with assurance of salvation. The first one is is theological ignorance, just not knowing your position in Christ, not understanding that. And that's that's easily remedied. How? By reading 1 John over and over again, because 1 John has a series of tests primarily around the idea of loving the the brethren, loving the church. And I don't mean loving the church as an institution. Uh, Many Catholics would say, I love the church, and they would call it the capital C uh, as an institution. I'm talking about regenerate believers who have a heart and have an affinity for other regenerate believers. Uh, my, My grandfather on my mom's side was a Church of God holiness pastor for 43 years. Years, which means they struggled with legalism. Uh, they, they struggled with a lot of rules. But I knew my grandparents well and they loved the Lord. But one of the things I loved about their tradition is that everybody in the church called each other brother or sister and last name. That, that was just the tradition. You know, I'd say, uh, you know, there's Brother Street over there and there's, uh, and, and there's a Brother Hoover. And that's just what everybody did. And that is a great reminder that we are in Christ and 1 John gives you that assurance. The second reason that people may not have assurance of salvation as Christians is because you're living a life that doesn't look very Christian. Um, Ephesians tells us to put off the things from the old man, put on the new. And so if you're insisting on pushing the boundaries, insisting on playing with sin, insisting on not confessing sin, insisting on uh, picking and choosing which part of sanctification you really want to work on in your life, then you don't have assurance of salvation. You begin to question your salvation, and you ought to. Because ultimately, a person who continues down that path for a long time may not have been regenerate in the first place. So those are the two basic issues around assurance of salvation. Salvation and First John is very helpful with that, and and by the way, it's this is a, a good polemic, a good argument against uh, Catholicism. Catholicism gives no assurance of salvation whatsoever, right? It's do the best you can until the very end, and hopefully at the end uh, you've done enough and you've you've uh, uh, been good enough and so forth, but. Um, 1 John is totally different. He says in chapter 5, verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Isn't that great? 
That's what this is for. And so um, it's good to have assurance of salvation. That's, that is a, a delightful thing. It's how you can live a Christian life that's, that's joyful and that's uh, content. Then you have Second John. The elder warned about showing hospitality to any false teachers. The elder warned about showing hospitality to any false teachers. Doesn't this feel, from a human standpoint, doesn't this feel a little bit oppressive? Second uh, John 9, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. There he is, black and white. Didn't abide in the teaching. Well, he might just be off track. Nope, doesn't have God. <laughs> the one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. But he's such a nice guy. And, and surely, God, nope, doesn't have God. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. Well, wait a minute. I thought we were supposed to love everybody. Not false teachers. Not false teachers. Uh, an atheist knocks on your door and says, can I eat dinner with you? Absolutely. False teacher? No way. Um, that's a tough thing. And by the way, are all false teachers unsaved? Not necessarily. There are saved men who begin to go astray either out of ignorance or worse. Um, and this is going to get a little controversial, so I love that. There's the door. I can make it there faster than you can. So, <laughs> An elder in a church who makes an assertion of something being true without scriptural support is acting the part of a false teacher. You have every right to ask any of your elders, we're doing this, can you provide scriptural support for that? Or you have said this, can you provide scriptural support for that? And if they can't, either at that moment or after a little bit of study, that is false teaching. And we've, I talk about this openly among our elders. It's, 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 when a preacher says, this is true, and doesn't tell you why, that is the quintessential definition of false teaching. Because our job is not to tell you what we think. Our job is to tell you what the Word of God says. And that's it. So, um, now does that mean that there are horrible men all over the place who are saved and yet false teaching? I fall back on Philippians 1 where Paul says if the gospel is preached no matter the motive, no matter how it's happening, then he's going to rejoice in that. Do people get saved in terrible churches? They do. That's probably why God leaves them open. Um, many of you could testify to the progression of your church life. Some of you, even in this room, started in the not-so-charismatic church and then kind of went to the uh, American Evangelical Church uh, where it's kind of namby-pamby. Then you went to something a little bit uh, more meaty and you made your way here. Um, I hope we're the last stop. I, I don't know if there's more beyond that. But, um, but this is tough. When somebody begins... To go off track, you don't, you, you don't choose relationship with that person over truth. You choose truth. And then maybe you won't ever be in that position, but you need to be prepared for it. You need to be prepared that you choose truth over relationship. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. What does that mean? It means guilt by association, right? You're friends with somebody... Uh, uh, who wants to teach something that is wrong? Uh, there was a there was a a man who may or may not have uh, occupied the pulpit in this particular building at one point, who wanted to have lunch with me, and I said no, not in a million years, not going to do it. 
because I don't want to participate in that. Somebody sees me at lunch with him, I better be pounding him with a Bible and showing him a gospel tract at that point. But no, I'm not going to do it. And so I know that sounds tough, that sounds harsh, but do you see how that elevates truth? The truth of the gospel is everything. It's everything. And so Second uh, John is very, very helpful for that. And then you have Third John, the elder commended the true believer and openly named an unworthy church leader. The, the, uh, the true believer, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. That's a, that's a deep bond. Not only, not only do they have the love of brothers in Christ, but they have a, a common love of the truth. And that's, that's a joy, that's a depth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when brothers came and bore witness to your truth. That is how you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in truth. And I love this. Verse 5, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever work you do for the brothers. And are doing this though they are strangers. So what we see here is... That Gaius leading a church or perhaps even a group of churches um, is being faithful. And how are they being faithful? There were, there were preachers, there were men who were out spreading the gospel, evangelizing the world. In verse 6, they bore witness to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in the manner worthy of God, for they went out for the sake of the name, receiving nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Those three verses right there, by the way, a little side note, are kind of the entire philosophy of, of missions that we hold to, that we support those who are going out to the truth. They should never receive uh, that's why if you ever see somebody outside Walmart with a coffee can taking donations for their ministry, no you don't do that. We don't take money from unbelievers to do the work of the gospel so um, so you have this, that's a, a glorious uh, a, a church leader, you have a church that's walking in the truth, they're, they're supporting missionaries and then boop, it flips to diatrophies and he's just direct he openly names an unworthy church leader and uh, John says I'm on my way and when I get there I'm going to expose this which is what he ought to do and that's what we're called to do in the church Uh, Ephesians 5 says that that we're not to have anything to do with evil deeds but instead we are to what expose them that's what we're to do so just tremendously rich letters Uh, there is a school of thought that says that 2nd and 3rd John may have been cover letters for 1st John they may have been kind of uh, some pre-script kind of introductions to 1st John I don't know for certain but that is uh, a a, uh, possibility now what I want to do is talk about I think one of the biggest interpretive issues in 1st John and this is one that keeps people up at night. And I, I want to talk about 1 John 5, 16 and 17. Because this is a, this is a, a kind of a hairy issue here. 1 John 5, 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. That's terrifying, isn't it? You're like, well, which one is it? And so you kind of say, well, 
Who is this talking about? Well, let's take this apart. What is the sin leading to death? And, and I'm going to kind of get into the weeds here for just a little bit, if that's okay. The common approach to this, I, I think probably the most common way this is looked at, is that this is speaking of sins that lead to physical death. And there's a lot of merit to that. First uh, Corinthians 11 um, Paul is very clear that God is killing people in the church that are acting in disobedience. And I would make the case that there, he's killing those who are acting in disobedience in withholding forgiveness and being bitter against others while celebrating the Lord's table and celebrating God's grace to them. Um, God does not put up with hypocrisy very long, even in the church. So there's a common approach that sin. this is sins that lead to physical death. And there is merit to it. One way to think about this is to explain it in terms of the Old Testament distinction between sins that are committed unintentionally and sins committed defiantly and with an, with an attitude, with an, a sinful heart. Uh, Leviticus 4, 2, Numbers 15, 22 through 25. I think I missed a slide, didn't I? I'm sorry. Just one? There we go. You'll get caught up. There's no hint in 1 John, though, that that's the distinction the author has in mind. And so it's very important to not, to not build a bridge where you don't have enough bricks. Um, so it makes sense, and it might be a good illustration, but that's not exactly what it says here. Another approach involves identifying the sin that leads to death with the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Uh, Mark three twenty-eight through 30, Jesus says this, um, speaking specifically to leaders of Israel that they have blasphemed the Holy Spirit and this will not be forgiven. This probably doesn't work though because it fails to note the explanation that's given by Mark concerning the nature of the sin and the nature of the sin is that of ascribing miracles that Jesus works to the power of Satan. And that that was their specific sin. There's no hint of this again in 1 John. Another approach says that the sin that leads to death is regarded as particularly heinous offenses. Adultery, murder, idolatry, apostasy. Again, those are, uh, those are assumptions. They're not in the text. If it's not in the text, then you can't be certain. That's why we, we want to just take with what's there. And yet another approach says that the sin that leads to death is deliberate. It's a, a persistent rejection of the truth. It is a continual rejection of the gospel truth. Um, now, that sin does lead to death eventually, but it's not clear that that's what John is thinking about here in this particular case. Probably the best approach is just to use the text itself and to see what distinctions are being made here. If you examine who it is that John sees committing sins that do lead to death and sins that do not lead to death, the distinction here is if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death. It's the brother whose sin is not unto death um, that the readers are urged to pray. This is the believer who is the believer who is in disobedience, the believer who is in an unrepentant state for something that, that others know about. And so I think probably the best way to go is just to say that the sin that does not lead to death is the sin of the believer. Does that mean that God doesn't kill believers? No, it just means that in this particular case, um, uh, death is not the, the consequence, and so you pray for them. Now, if that's the case, 
What is the sin that does lead to death? I think the best case is that that's the sin of the unbeliever with, the, with those that particularly that are false believers in the church. John deals with this big time in 1 John. And, and I think the, the case is made pretty strongly for this because within the overall context of 1 John, where those who have rejected the faith are regarded as unbelievers, even though they're, they're the tares among the wheat, he even calls them antichrists. The sin that leads to death is probably the sin of apostasy, the the sin of having come close to the faith and yet not received Christ. Uh, Hebrews 6 describes this sin as well. Their denial that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh. Um, and, and John does deal with that topic, by the way. The denial of the incarnation of Christ is considered a, an offense that keeps you from being saved. You must believe that Jesus came in the flesh. Otherwise, the gospel doesn't make any sense. And they also were apparently believing that, that the death of Christ was not necessary for salvation. So... The advantage to just seeing this very simply is the sin that does not lead to death is that of the believer and the sin that does lead to death is that of the the unbeliever is that it really goes right along with all the central issues being addressed in 1 John. Um, the division, that there are, there are people in a room gathered together. Some are saved, some are not. How do you know? And how do you make that distinction? And so what do you do with... The brother, you see a brother committing a sin, not leading to death. He shall ask God, and God will give for him, will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. What, what does that mean? It means that you pray for the discipline and the help of the Lord, and He brings it. He brings it, and He is faithful there. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that He should make request for this. Oh, what does that mean? This sounds like Paul or John is saying, don't pray for unbelievers. That's not what he's saying here. I do not say that he should make requests for this concerning the sin leading to death. You don't pray for unbelievers to sin less because it doesn't help them. Even in their, in, even in their unsaved state, Unbelievers can make New Year's resolutions. Unbelievers can improve their lives. Unbelievers can make life-altering decisions. And if they do it enough and successfully enough, then they go on the road as motivational speakers and tell other people how to do it. They can make changes. Unbelievers can, at some level, decrease sin in their lives. I have counseled with unbelieving couples, and and I tell them, look, here's the gospel. You're both going to die and go to hell, but if you're determined to reject the gospel, um, I have seen unbelievers improve their marriages. I have seen them stop sinning as much against each other. But does that do them any good? For an unbeliever to say, Lord, help this unbeliever to not sin so much. Doesn't help him at all. In fact, it can be a form of self-righteousness. Why do I need Christ? I've been improving my own life. So I think that's the best way to take that. You pray for the unbeliever, but you pray for them to be convicted by their sin, to be disgusted by it, and to repent of it. So that's a little difficult issue there. Um, 1 John, all about seeing that false believers have shown their true colors by turning away from the faith. Let me read you 1 John 3.14. I, I love this one. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. The one who does not love abides in death. There it is. Very simple. One other interpretive issue, and it's not a major one. 
the elect lady of 2 John. 2 John 1, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also who know the truth. The argument is, is this a particular woman and her children, or is this a local church? There's actually really good arguments both ways, um, and we do have examples of letters being written to individuals, right? Paul to Timothy, Paul to Titus, and so forth. But all of those letters were also meant for the church. I would lean probably a little more heavily toward this being for the local church because uh, the rest of the letter concerns the functioning of the church. That's, that's what the letter's about. And so I would tend to call it a church. Um, and by the way, the end of the letter... The children of your elect sister greet you. Uh, This is where we get the phrase, a sister church. That's where we get it. A a like-minded church uh, in in Bakersfield. There are a few sister churches, not very many, that we would call like-minded. And so that's where we get the phrase, the children of your elect sister greet you. So that's not a major issue. You don't need to stay up tonight going, was it a church or was it a woman? I don't know. Um, I do have one thing in favor of it being a church. It's in the Bible and it is to be taught to the church. Right? Um, now, maybe it is a woman. I don't know. And we'll, we'll find out. And she may be like the fourth person I meet in heaven. And she says, hey, that was me. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. Sorry about that. I'm going to stop there because I, I don't want to rush through the book of Revelation except to say one thing about Revelation. Turn to the book of Revelation. This is not going to be as important as you are thinking it's going to be. Look at the title of the book. Do you see an S anywhere in the title? It is not Revelations. That is a key sign that you haven't read the book. So... From here on out, don't say revelations. Um, and I love it when somebody I meet somebody at, you know in the store or something. Well, revelations says, and I like you don't know what it says because you've never read the book. Okay, that's just a little pet peeve with me. It is the revelation of John, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you looked at it in, in Greek, it, it makes more sense. The revealing, not the revealings. So, there it is. I told you it wouldn't be as important as you thought it would be, but it is revelation. Now, I know next week when we talk about this, I'm going to put the S in it by accident, and there we go. I'm going to take uh, about five minutes, and I've told you everything I know about First and Second and Third John, but if you have any other questions, just generally speaking, I'd love to field some questions. Yes? Can I have a two-part question? Absolutely. Thanks for telling me. John, 80 or 90 AD, how old was he? Uh, he he's probably 90 by then. Yeah, he wrote Revelation in about 95, okay. so he's pushing 100 at that point. Okay. So, he, so here's my question, probably sounds stupid, but I'm just curious. So John was very black and white from his perspective? It, it mostly, yeah. Yeah, could that possibly be the fact that he was around a long time, he walked with Jesus, at that point he didn't have time or patience for anything outside the black and white. You, you know, that there, there's a lot of merit to that. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of, you know, there's a, there's a, 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 a legend and it's 
really based in a lot of pretty good church history that John um, he, he, uh, we don't think he died on the island of Patmos he was, he was ultimately released he was put there because uh, according to um, according to very strong tradition um, uh, the emperor of Rome tried to kill him and couldn't do it um, he didn't die and so he's put there but there is a very strong tradition that, that, that when he went back uh, his home base was probably Ephesus that he went, when he went back to Ephesus um, that he was so old and so decrepit that they would carry him into church on a pallet and that, that it, at one point he just his whole thing was to say children love one another my children love one another that was his that was his whole thing so that comes from experience and I, I would agree with you um, when I get a chance to hear a preacher who's 90 I don't care if he's drooling I don't care if they have to wheel him up there I don't care if he can't form sentences that's a guy who's walked with the Lord for almost a century I want to hear what he has to say so yeah that's a great question yeah do covenant theologians put First, second, and third John written um, after Revelation, since they put Revelation yes. being way before. Yeah, I, I would guess that's my guess. I I don't read a lot of Covenant theologians because they a little bit drive me nuts in their. And when you're talking about um, end times, they're not helpful to me. Um, but I would guess that because one, uh, their their view of Revelation, uh, which is that that most, if not all of it, happened. Well, that's a that's a big if. If all of it happened uh, already, then that puts you in the category of heresy. Uh, we'll explain that next week. If most of it happened, that puts you in the category of what they call semi-preterist. Um, that most of it has already happened. It all depends on Revelation being written during the reign of Nero and before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, which is a major problem for uh, now dating 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which pretty much across the board everybody agrees is well after the destruction of Jerusalem because he's not right he's not concerned with Jews in Jerusalem there is no Jerusalem it's gone and they're they're scattered they're spread out everywhere so that's a, that's a great point I never thought about that um, I'm going to go look that up actually so what, what other questions any topic whatsoever yeah David now, speaking about love loving the brethren so we talked about not welcoming the false teachers but what about the people that are sitting under the false teachers? How how are we to love them? And, you know, and they're have a zeal for their teaching. How do we approach that? You know, um, that is. I'm going to put that in the top ten questions that I ever get as a pastor. Um, because I just let me let me watch this demonstration. How many of you here have friends, loved ones, or relatives that you know are being badly influenced by terrible teachers right now? I rest my case. So what do you do with them? That's a tough thing. Jesus was pretty clear that you choose the gospel over family. You choose the gospel over family relationships. And we have an obligation to warn and to say, look, you, you don't... And this is, the, this is the thing about spiritual deception. They don't know they're being deceived. Otherwise, it wouldn't be deception. And so if, uh, for example, I have a relative who just loves every false teacher you can possibly imagine, Joyce Meyer and Joel Osteen, and, and like her house is like a monument to heresy. I think she loves the Lord. But I, I, I've told her, um, you, you need to quit listening to these people. You need to stop, and here's why. But they get so enamored with the, the appearance of success. And so I think the best thing you can do 
if it, let's let's do it for instance. This is a, a local person that you can meet with. Then instead of doing the direct approach of just saying you need to leave, you need to get out of there, then get them to study the Bible with you. Say, hey, you say you love the Bible, I love the Bible. Why don't we start reading through First John together? Can we do that? Well, yeah, why not? You know. Um, and let them begin to see truth. A couple of weeks ago when Tim Carnes was here, um, somebody asked the question about whether they're dealing with a charismatic issue in, in Pakistan because all the pastors he's teaching are Pentecostal. I, 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 he said that, I said, I'm out. I couldn't do it. You know? But he's a gracious man and I am not. And he, and he said, you remember what he said? That as they learned to study the Bible, they began seeing that they were in error. So give them the truth, and pretty soon they'll just be disgusted by what they're hearing, and then you've got them. If you tell them your pastor is a horrible person, there might be an emotional connection there, you know, because all, not all terrible teachers are terrible people. And they might, in fact, be really, really nice guys. Well, you know, you're talking about the guy who, who did my, my mother's funeral. You're talking about the guy who was there when my kids were baptized. You're talking about the guy who was there when my wife was in a car accident. Um, so just show them truth. And, and you can do it in a way that, hey, let's, let's look at truth together. Let, not what I say. Let's just see what the Bible says. And ask them to interpret Scripture from a plain, read it like a newspaper. Um, what, what does this say? Just what are the facts? And that's the best approach. Um, prayer has to be at the top of that. You just pray for a discontentment. Pray for them to suddenly have their eyes open and go, I've been eating cotton candy and thinking that it's steak. So uh, you saw all the hands. You're not alone. And I, I love Grace Bible Church has become kind of a um, kind of the landing spot for the people who are coming out. You know, they're 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 coming. They're sort of in the days like I can't believe I've been listening to this junk for ten years. And some of you are smiling right now. I was like, "Yep, that's me." Um, and so so then they then they have to start over. I've had this conversation a hundred times probably with somebody saying, "I love the Lord." I was saved when I was a child. I'm pretty sure I've been sitting under what I now know to be really namby-pamby, maybe even sometimes false teaching for four decades. Where do I start? And just that grief of, of, man, what could I have known? Well, we trust the sovereignty of God. We trust that He would have you know what you would know. But when you, when you see that the Bible is the only source of truth and that it is... It is Infinite in its depth. Don't you feel blessed that the Lord brought you to that understanding? I know I do, and I'm thankful for that. So, you know, the man who was the best man at my wedding, I was flirting with charismaticism when I started college, flirting with it hard. And the only reason was that all the believers I knew were charismatic. And they weren't corner assembly of God charismatic. They were... Uh, uh, T.D. Jake's big time charismatic and I was flirting with it and this young man who lived down the hall from me gave me a book by John MacArthur called The Charismatics and I read it I was convinced had the same little chat with my wife we, we were both convinced together and I praise the Lord for that he was the best man at my wedding he has been sucked into the prosperity gospel for the last 35 years and uh, hasn't spoken to me in 20 years. 
I have tried to call him to account and to get him to the word of God. He has a degree in Bible. And now he goes to a church that is an offshoot of Bethel. And he's one of their big guys. He runs their healing school. And he's never healed anybody. Ever one time. And I grieve that. I grieve that. I see him in my wedding video. And I have a hard time watching it because I know where he is. We all have those stories. So you get on your knees and you pray for God to open their eyes to the beauty of the gospel. Go to the cross and you're safe there. Right? That was a long answer to that question. Yeah. Let's do one more. Yeah. Leon. The word rapture. Where does that come from? Uh, it is a translation of a translation. It's a. It is a. Rapture is a Greek. Is an English translation of the Greek word uh, for the Latin word. So, or is it the Latin word? Jay, help me out. Is it the is it the English translation of the Latin of the Greek? Yeah. Anyway, it's a two way. So when people say the word rapture is not in the Bible, yes, it is. You just have to translate it twice. So. Uh, the, the Latin is something like rapturo or something like that. And um, uh, what's the Greek word for it? just left me. Harpazo, that's right. Yeah. So, all right. I believe in the harpazo. That's fine. We'll just use the correct word. Yeah. Thank you, Leon. Well, uh, I, hope you're, I hope you're ready for the Lord's Day. I am. I am eager. And we'll, we'll go out together. Let's, let's pray together. Our Father, we have just kind of dipped our toe in the waters, the cool and refreshing living waters of the Word of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts now to sing with all of our might, to listen with all of our might, and to obey you with all of our might, to love you with all of our heart, soul, might, and strength, Lord. We pray, Lord, that this day is life-changing, that you would help us to walk in the truth. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it.